So at the end of the day, I think it's really about um, understanding that many things are valued in running an effective business. But ultimately, nowadays, especially with the customer, especially with the worker, um, there are some elements of the business that I think most people would describe as kind of softer elements, less less rigid elements, are really um, the the new um, they're, they're, they're the new tactics on the game board, and 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 the game board has has changed, and the game values different things in it, and it rewards different things, and uh, in the game of business, you know you have to understand when when, you know, when the, fo- when, when, when the posts move. Hi there, I'm Paul Silliman, and you're listening to the Restoration Playbook podcast by KnowHow. Today we've got Leighton Healy back on to talk about even more ways today's leaders are winning with workers. We'll discuss how to connect work to meaning, how to democratize your how-to, and how to leverage tech on the job. Let's dive in. Leighton, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Yeah, doing really well. Things uh, uh, are moving and grooving, as they say. Moving and grooving, Paul. So moving and grooving, and it's uh, it's it's been exciting to see the reception of the book, and it's exciting to see um, people uh, respond that this is providing them with uh, some guidance, some validation, um, helping them to see maybe some gaps, and so uh, that's been really positive. So I would say I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good. I like it. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in. So, you know, we're going to go through three chapters of the book today. The first one we'll dive into is uh, our chapter five, which is, you know, connecting work to meaning. You know, Winning with Workers talks about how younger generations want to have meaning in the work they do. I'm curious, why do you think they want to make a difference at work and kind of what's changed over the years? So the book is focused on these eight principles. And so principles, you know, we we chose the word principles very uh, specifically because a lot of things change. You know, this industry, it changes a lot. It change, You know, I mean, I, I can just tell you from someone who hasn't been in this industry for 30 years, I, you know, I, even in the, in the time I've been in the industry, there are some things that have changed and they're meaningful changes. Um, but principles are things that we can look to as uh, in a sense, kind of uh, largely immovable structures on the horizon that we can use to orient our life and make decisions based on. And, and uh, I often think about, you know, being out at sea in the middle of the night as a, as a sailor exploring the world. And I look up and you see these stars that are largely, you know, set fixtures in the night. And, and people would use those to, to make navigational decisions. And so principles are kind of along the same vein. So within the book, the third principle that we talk about is if you want to win with workers today, you have to learn how to bridge the bridge the gap between, you know, how I how I earn my money and really how I experience um, meaning and fulfillment in my life. And so your question is, what's going on with these workers that they have such a high expectation for work? And there's a lot of things going on, Paul. I'll, I'll list a few. Um, one is is that um, you you have increased exposure, and so the average young person 
um, just in their in their devices, um, in, in online, in the news, um, you know, in TV, uh, in in just popular culture. We just were exposed to a lot more examples of what life can be like uh, than than a lot of previous generations. And so at the end of the day, uh, there is just a greater awareness that, um, you know, sometimes when a, a person grows up in a small town and they don't have a lot of access with the outside world, you know, they come around and they kind of gooseneck as they, you know, drive through the city and they're like, wow, I didn't know buildings could be that big or I didn't know that, you know, you could have so many people on one street. Well, even people from a small town today can watch a movie or watch a live stream and recognize that the world is is different. And so people have more exposure. I think that's one of the first things. And they bring uh, those ex- that exposure forms expectations and those expectations come with them to work. I think the second thing is, is that um, people, um, I would say, you know, when you think about what characterizes a lot of the social exchanges with young people, Work is uh, is a very important thing to young people. They're they're trying to find their way, Paul. They're trying to you know we we all accept that finding a job is an important part of coming to maturity, and uh, you know a lot of young people are taking on financial responsibilities, whether they're small things like making a car payment or they're big things like they're responsible for a young family, and uh, and so with that it begins to dominate a lot of their social conversations. And so um, nowadays you know everyone wants to be able to say things that are buzzworthy and important. And, and I think that, uh, uh, people ultimately, um, uh, talk about their work in a way that previous generations may not have, you know, in the way that other generations might, you know, you leave work at work and then you talk about your hobbies, you talk about sports. I think a lot of people, um, work really dominates a lot of the headlines in their social discussions. And so that is a, is a factor as well. And then you know what you can't discount the fact that uh, that the Gen Z worker, um, I believe, is is been heavily influenced by um, you know a number of big factors. Paul, number one, the Gen Z worker was de- was deeply impacted by the COVID pandemic, and uh, we can get into that if you want. Uh, they were also really impacted by uh, the advent of mobile technology. Um, they were very impacted by just what they've seen, kind of how they've seen their parents' lives. Plan, like kind of like roll out most most Gen Zs their parents are like what we call kind of early stage uh, Gen Xs and um, one of the defining characteristics of Gen X has been there's been generally a lot of dissatisfaction uh, in in the in their in, in their careers you know you can get into the how the demographers talk about that but in a nutshell um, they were promised a lot in a sense from, by the, from the world they were very educated work for, workforce the Gen Xs um, so you have you have Gen Z you have millennial, then you have Gen X. So quick, quick age brackets, you know, millennials, uh, Gen Zs are today are age eight to 24. Millennials are ages 25 to 40. Some will say maybe 43. And then uh, you've got uh, Gen Xs who are kind of in that like 53 to uh, 43. I, I'll, I'll say like 41, 41 to 53. And so most Gen Zs parents are Gen Xs. Okay. And so the Gen X generation has had a big influence. And, and by and large, uh, a common characteristic of Gen Xs has been that they've been relatively distant, I would say somewhat like they haven't been really flattered with, with, with their career choices and work. It hasn't given them the fulfillment. So I think young people coming into the workplace have seen that, Paul, and they recognize that um, they don't want that. 
You know, they don't want to be kind of a grouchy, miserable person who lives vicariously through their sports and hobbies and, 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 and sports icons, right? So, you know, that's maybe more meat than, than uh, you thought you were going to uh, bite off there, but um, that's probably some of the reasons why they come to work wanting to achieve deeper meaning and fulfillment in the workplace than, than, other, work, than other generations. No, that makes a lot of sense. I know, I know my parents... You know, they work certain jobs for so long, even if there's friction or it's not something that's fulfilling. It's this is your job. This is what you do it. And like something you mentioned in today's day and age with technology, work tends to follow you home if you let it. You know, the phone never stops ringing. Emails never stop coming through. So it's easy to be, you know, at your fingertips at all time. It's not as easy as it once Mm -hmm. was where when you physically left the office, you left work behind. And that kind of leads into a a good question I have here as well for you, which in a recent episode with Chuck Lane, the uh, VP of Learning and Development Mm -hmm. at Blue Sky Restoration, he discussed the misconceptions Mm -hmm. that, you know, the restoration industry isn't a, you know, worthwhile career choice for young workers. You know, we'll Mm -hmm. play the clip for him here now for us. We kind of told a whole generation of, of kids that, you don't even get to look at certain jobs, you know, whether it was auto shop, metal shop, wood shop, all these different things. We, we kind of told people for a while that these jobs aren't worth looking at. They're not worth getting into. And now we're seeing this huge, gra- uh, huge gap, excuse me, in the trades. Right. And we know realistically, right, like these are the jobs that make the world go round. Like these are truly important jobs that people should be embracing and learning about and and at least looking at as viable options, but as a career, right? And that's the thing about, I think, where we're at, at a kind of a a rough point in in our history right now with everything, you know, kind of pre-COVID, post-COVID, and a lot of people have talked about this shift in what people want from their lives. And I think most people now really want to say, I want to be a part of something. You know, I want to be about something a little bit bigger than myself. I need a purpose, right? And, you know, so Leighton, what I'm wondering is, you know, how can today's restoration companies showcase the positive impacts to attract potential hires? Because this is an industry that it really at the core of it, you're helping people on, on a lot of cases, their worst day. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of it, Paul, you know, my perspective is a lot of it goes back to um, how have we been promoting ourselves as restorers to the marketplace? And a lot of that has been influenced by the, the very practical business advice, which is, you know, the way you display and you promote your company should be directed towards, you know, the needs and wants um, of your customers. And up until now, a lot of customers have been saying, you know, who is the most qualified? You know, who has the most capacity to, to deal with my needs? And um, and that has characterized a lot of how these companies have have tried to promote themselves and position themselves in the market. And so all you need to do is, you know, type restoration over an American city, click on two or three um, Google links, and, y- you know, you'll see, um, you know, Four out of five companies, you know, their 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 top Google picture is just, we own fifteen vans that all have our branding on it, right? And that was part of how we would promote ourselves as we're a company that has capacity and has the resources to support you in a time of crisis. Um, you know, that doesn't 
uh, appeal to a worker who's thinking about doing an interview with that company and who care, could care less about, you know, really how we do the work. They're really more interested in um, if I'm going to invest 12 months or 24 months or 36 months of my life in this company, um, you know, what what am I going to have to show for it? Like, ultimately, what am I going to have to bring back to that Saturday night conversation with my friends? And um, and at the end of the day, you know, I think Chuck and his team at Blue Sky, you know, they they do they do many things really well. And one of the things that they do well is that they 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 are open to changing their perspective and thinking about how do we as an organization, as large as Blue Sky is, how do we try to stay nimble and responsive to the market? And what the market and what the worker wants today is they they want to be able to know that uh, when they come home from, from work and that cared, that loved one asks them, you know, how was your day and how do you feel about how your day went? They want to be able to say, you know, I really think I made a difference today. And that matters to young workers today. It matters um, because they, so much of popular culture today tells them that, um, that life is short, it's fragile, and, uh, and you need to make a difference with your life. And those, are, those, aren't, those aren't bad, bad um, I think, uh, you know, adages to kind of hang your, your hat on. I think that, I think that just the, what, what many companies are struggling with, Paul, is simply, um, is, is it my responsibility to help you find meaning in your life? You know, and, and they're, that's, the, that's what they're saying. Instead of saying, hey, every day of the week, like we help people out of their worst day, um, I guess I just haven't really thought about positioning it to someone who's sitting across the interview table as rather than saying, okay, I don't want this guy or this gal quitting 30 days in, so I'm just going to let them know how intense it is and, and just keep kind of like like just giving them the old side eye to say, you're still here, you're still here. I'm going to tell you the story about when things really went wrong. You're still here, you're still here. And that kind of pressure test-based interviewing that characterizes a lot of companies' approach to trying to weed out the weak, it's just it's not necessary anymore. And it doesn't, I would say, really, you know, identify the candidates who I think could be great workers. Um, what it does is it probably just identifies people who just have exhausted their options and you're their last option. So whatever you're going to say, they're going to say yes to. So at the end of the day, you know, what we recommend, Paul, is workers today do want to do work that they 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 feel a sense of pride in. They, they feel like they could talk to their peers with their head held high. Um, and, uh, and, and there probably is an element where people want to feel a little, you know, a little self-righteous. But at the end of the day, think about this, like forget about the term restoration. If I was just to just paint a picture for you where, you know, you and I, Paul are interviewing a candidate and they come into the office and I welcome them there. And then rather than, you know, talking to them about mold for five minutes or talking about the last job we come off. I just come in and I just say, how much do you know about the impact we have in people's lives? I mean, an applicant would be like, I know very little. Well, let me start by actually telling you the story of, uh, of just, just three families that we helped last week. And it's important to me that you understand the lives we touch. And then they just, you just tell just a couple quick, you know, allegories of, uh, you know, a couple stories and, 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 and what happened and, and, and what that disruption cost them in their life and how it meant that, you know, an important family event had to be rescheduled or, you know, or, or something that uh, was important to them got really thrown off and, and how through the efforts of their team, 
they were able to bring that person's life out of a spiral of chaos, reestablish them and, and be able to help them to kind of re- return to a, a, a place of order in their lives. And a candidate will be so taken back, they'll think that, that they're being interviewed for like a firefighting position, right? Or maybe like, you know, maybe like one of those those opportunities to go like hand out, you know, like, you know, shoebox gifts in like sub-Saharan Africa. They're like, oh, hold on a second here. I thought this was like, like my buddy told me to get a job here and, and they said it's going to be a real grind. I said, well, of course it is. That's a means to an end. But the end, make no mistake, is that we really get to help people. And um, one of the things we talk about in the book, Paul, and then I'll put it back to you. And but, but one of the things we talk about in the book is that, you know, when a person joins your team, and, and in that interview, you you it's so important that you show them a path to impact in the first thirty days. No question, you want them to be competent in your equipment and your tools and your services. But you need to say, look, you've got options out there in the market. But if you choose to work with us, I can guarantee you that in a month from today you're going to look back with a sense of pride with the, with the names of different homeowners and different humans that you, that you could actually bump into on the street someday and 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 have people that express thanks and appreciation to you and and who and, and who you are the topic of dinner dinner discussion 2 months from now where they just talk about how how essential you were in a moment of chaos in their lives you put that in front of a candidate, and I, and I think the beauty of it is you can say that sincerely, and it's just really about, I think, peeling off some of the calloused layers that can come along with being in this industry for a long time and, and getting to the heart of the matter and then just putting that um, on the table for a candidate. And you know what, Paul? Some are going to say, yeah, that's not really what I'm looking for. But others are going to say, man, am I glad that I took this interview. What do you think? I think you... If there's any restoration companies listening to this, if there's anything you take away from this podcast, it's how are you positioning your company to those new hires? Because I've been in a couple of places where it's exactly like you said, we'll give you two weeks. If you're still here in two weeks, let's talk. You know, we're going to run you through the grind. But being able mm-hmm. to present, you know, what's your vision? How do we go about and impact people's lives is something that is a great selling point that seems to be overlooked. Mm -hmm. How are you actually giving an impact on your community and really kind of open up that person's eyes to the industry that you're coming into instead of, well, you know, we'll just kind of grind it out. If you're here, we'll see. Cause who, let's be honest, we're not setting anyone up for success with that approach. Mm -hmm. So I think that's extremely powerful and you know, it's, it's overlooked and is something that every restoration company has that's what you do. It's something that you can make one shift and one change in that interview and it might make all the difference in the world. Plus you find those people that connect to that. Those are the people that want to come and make a difference. So it might help you distinguish between different candidates as well. Hmm. You know, I, it makes me think of a recent conversation I had um, where I was, you know, there was a uh, gentleman who's, who's, you know, been a subcontractor. He's been thinking about trying to get his own business going and uh, and he said, you know, I've just been having trouble getting it going. And and I asked him, I said, what do you think is the is the obstacle? And there was different obstacles, but one obstacle is, you know, he said, you know, I'm 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 just I'm such a craftsman and with what I do. And and it was pretty clear that this individual takes so much pride in the work in the workmanship that he does, but it gets lost 
in, conver- in in just frictitious conversations with customers and nobody wants to work for him because he's really picky and he's just he can be really prickly and um and that and that's that's a picture of of so many companies today where don't hear don't mishear me like workmanship and quality of work is is vital to to doing the job but at the end of the day um i think we can all agree that uh you know and this is kind of an old adage but you know whatever you uh recognize uh you're really going to to get more of and if all you're recognizing is workmanship and all of your pictures is you know look at how good we got our you know um containment chamber walls up and and all these different things online i mean at the end of the day that's important no question but but what it's communicating to the outside world is that you know workmanship is 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 what matters most and not impact the workmanship is important but make no mistake the workmanship is a means to an end it's not the end in itself you know you know we don't you know put up these walls and then send an invoice to an insurance company you know we we bring this home back to a place of order and uh and then once you know those those containment chambers are either in the garbage can or who knows maybe you're reusing them or whatever um well long after they're off the site you know we consider the job done um so at the end of the day i think it's really about um understanding that many things are valued in running an effective business but ultimately nowadays especially with the customer especially with the worker um, there are some elements of the business that I think most people would describe as kind of softer elements, less less rigid elements, are really um, the the new um, they're, they're, they're the new tactics on the game board, and 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 the game board has has changed, and the game values different things, and it and it rewards different things, and uh, in the game of business, you know you have to understand when when you know when the foot when 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 the posts move right um and the posts are moving and um i like to tell business owners um like what are you more committed to are you more committed to your perspective your way of doing it or winning just choose one right um and 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 for people that want to win um all i would say is yeah the game has changed and the game has changed and 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 the worker has changed and the customer has changed and um and those macro waves are so much bigger and more powerful than your entrenched way of doing things no that's that's dynamite insights there and that's you know speaking to change nice segue into our next chapter um you know this is something that we see a lot with this is something that's near to near and dear to both our hearts is you know our next principle we're going to dive into is you know how to democratize how to you know mm-hmm. restoration leaders are using different ways to help win with their workers and really kind of getting that how to information out there kind of in this essence that means they're making expertise and knowledge accessible to everyone what impact mm-hmm. does this have on employees and management when they have that information? When workers have quick and easy answers to solve the problems that they encounter on the job site, they feel empowered. Uh, they feel confident. They feel like um, uh, the company uh, prioritizes them. Uh, they feel like uh, they 
uh, are able to properly care for a customer. Um, they feel that um, that they um, aren't left out to dry in uh, in in situations where they're the least experienced person on the site or in the office. I mean, and the list goes on, right? And the list goes on. Um, let me let me um, maybe share like a micro history nugget. Um, it wasn't that many long that many years ago, um, sitting uh, on a pier in San Francisco. Um, uh, two of the founders of KnowHow, myself and another um, much more handsome gentleman than, than myself, were sitting there and we were, we were just thinking about uh, the future of, of what is now KnowHow. And, um, and we, we, we both had a passion for, uh, for two things. One is that we had a passion for work. We both enjoy work. And we think work um, fundamentally was, 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 was really designed to be something that is is meaningful and can be a source of of uh of fulfillment in in a person's life. But the other thing that we found just very compelling Paul is study after study, you know, by 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 respected organizations showed that um that by and large the largest employment sectors in North America, namely service sectors, trade services, um field-based services, um consistently scored amongst the lowest in terms of job satisfaction. And when you, when you kind of like pull back, you know, just kind of like, like just push, you know, pull back the kimono, as they might say, and say, well, what's going on here? Um, routinely, what you see is staff complaining about um, frustration and disappointment in the workplace resulting from two big things. One being, it's just hard for me to be able to know if I did a good job today. And so I go home without even knowing if I did things well, because I don't actually get any feedback unless I screw something up. And then the other thing is that I just, I just tragically have a adversarial relationship with my supervisor. And let's just, let's just stand up for supervisors for a moment. Supervisors that are the sole source of how everything's supposed to be done. They are the standard of how things are supposed to be done. And there's one of them for 20 people where there shouldn't be, you know, there should actually be one for maybe five. They're tired. They're burned out. They're sick of being the golden standard. They're sick of being the frequently asked question machine. And so, yeah, they're a little snappy. They're a little snappy in their responses, right? And so the root of all of that is that, the way to do things should be clear, it should be easy to access, and it should be available to everyone. And what we know is that when that's done, it eliminates the two most commonly stated reasons why service-based workers are disgruntled and frustrated at work. It's just simply that they feel disempowered to be able to solve even simple problems at work without having that little just just thorn in the back of their mind saying, am I going to get chewed out? Right. And, um, so democratizing work is critical to winning with workers because number one, it eliminates one of the main causes of stress and friction and what we would call societal rust in your workforce, which is just, I'm sick and tired of feeling like an idiot every day and feeling like I have to kind of tiptoe around decisions. Um, before I just kind of creep into my supervisor's office or try to get them on their phone and, and then, and then put them in a scenario where once again, you know, they have to re-explain something that to them is quite basic, but to the worker is, um, is still unclear. And so 
you know, that was the democratizing the way things are supposed to get done. Uh, it, 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 it matters because uh, it's one of the main reasons why a lot of people go home disappointed with their work, right? When I say most people, because, you know, over 67% of, of employed humans in North America are in service-based work. So, yes, yeah, so most people in North America go home having had a bad day at work because they either felt like an idiot, they didn't know what a good job looked like, or they had a frictitious engagement with their manager who's just, because that manager honestly just has, has too much coming at them. Um, and so, yeah, democratizing how to is super, super important. So important that, um, you know, um, we, we, we commit our time and know how to solve it. And on that point, can you provide our listeners with some tangible strategies and methods to transition away from that one subject matter expert model and towards a more effective knowledge sharing approach? Yeah, well, hey, we're talking about this book, Why Workers, sorry, Winning with Workers. Why Workers Quote is our last book, Winning with Workers. And, um, you know, you go to winningwithworkers.com, you know, get a free copy of the of the book. And, uh, and the way we wrote this book, Paul, is we, we at, at the close of each chapter, what we did is we took time to identify a list of things that you can stop doing, things that you can start doing, and ultimately things that you can invest in. And so really, I would just draw from the book. I mean, one of the first things that we would say stop doing if you want to become a company that democratizes how to do things around the company is stop, we would say stop praising non-scalable ways of sharing knowledge. You know, a person, uh, maybe a manager walks into a meeting and they say, hey, sorry, I'm a few minutes late. Um, you know, I got stuck on a call with Carl. Everyone knows Carl. And uh, yeah, he still hasn't figured out how to get those machines working. So, but hey, I took some time and I, and I walked him through it. And everyone's like, ah, oh, good job. You're really caring. You know, you really go over and above. No. In fact, what they did is they created a dependent relationship that, you know, you know, you, you don't you you do not have the resources to solve the problem on your own. So you got to call someone, interrupt their schedule, to get things back online. It's better to say, how often do you take those types of calls? And most of the time, those really smart people will say with a with an air of 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 you know almost like uh, you know um, just just confidence. They'll say, you know, I, I take those calls a lot. I try to be I try to be available to my team, and and all I see, Paul as a business builder, especially a business builder aware of what's going on in the workforce today, is just a manager with like 57 umbilical cords tied to them. And they create deep levels of dependence on their staff and it becomes a big part of their identity at work and, and frankly their, 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 their value at work is, is, is that my guys couldn't, couldn't go a day without me, right? And, uh, and you know what? That's a dangerous cocktail. It's a dangerous cocktail uh, for so many reasons. And so we say stop praising non-scalable ways of knowledge sharing. You know, put that person in a room and commit them to capturing, you know, the 10 to 12 most common questions that they encounter on a daily basis and put them in a format that the worker, uh, that today's workers uh, are familiar with and are comfortable using and, uh, and, and, and help that person transition from, a walking, talking question and answer machine to more of a performance coach, like someone who helps people navigate kind of gray areas that aren't as kind of 
you know, black and white. And frankly, it's more rewarding for everybody. But the first thing that we would say, Paul, is don't reward those non-scalable ways of sharing knowledge. No, I think that's tremendous insight because especially, you know, I've worked with people who put their value in being that frequently asked question person. Like that was their value. Mm -hmm. If I'm not here, who's going to answer the question? This is kind of my calling to be here, but really their job role doesn't have anything to do with that. Or, you know, their compensation package comes from actually doing their revenue producing job, but they're spending time being this person that's, oh, I'm always available. I'm here for questions. But then they're also at the office till 830 at night trying to catch up on what their primary responsibilities are. And it's Mm -hmm. in a day and age where we have cell phones, we have the ability of sharing information. It's really driving down that value, not building up like they think. And I think that's something that, you know, we're Mm -hmm. seeing less of, but also being able to share that information, being able to find possibly a better way of doing something. You know, we're not set in our ways. And as anyone in restoration knows, there's new, you know, ways of doing things, new equipment, new, you know, best practices for speaking with homeowners and adjusters. And if you're set in that one way, you're not going to be able to grow and scale. So I think you captured a lot on that one on just really helping that person do their job better, but also really how do we eliminate some of that friction and stress as well? And one thing I'll just say really briefly, Paul, is many people have bought into the idea that technology has improved my accessibility when it's really supposed to improve your scalability, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, just because the phone is constantly on your belt or in your pocket, you know, a person could say, ah, that means that technology has made you accessible always, when in reality, technology is really more about enhancing, adding productivity, adding scalability um, to you know to your your workforce, and so no question, access is something technology provides, but it's really only one of multiple pillars that the technology is supposed to support us with, and so and I think we over rely on it. We over rely on just how accessible technology makes us, as opposed to saying, hey, technology's got a lot more moves than just access. Right. And um, and thinking about how you democratize the way you do things is starting to think about, you know, what 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 else can we can we can we lean on technology to to help us with? You know, one of the things we say, start doing if you want to start being a company who democratizes, um, you know, how to is we say, look, and this is one of the most important things that you can do is. Discover how your incoming workers, particularly young workers, right? Workers that are, you know, let's say like 18 to 30, right? Discover how they solve complicated, multifaceted, knowledge-based problems when they're not at work. Because they're already doing it. They're solving, again, either complex recipes or swapping out parts on a vehicle with no mechanics mechanical training um or they're making ancient grain bread or they're or they're you know or they're figuring out you know a new uh technology and and again they're they're figuring it out using technology and they're and and so i always say whatever you land on as the way that you equip your staff with the way you want them to do their job and how you want them to solve problems look no further than how people use primarily mobile devices to solve knowledge-based problems outside of work. Because when you're trying to get people to adopt a way of solving knowledge-based problems at work, you're really trying to overcome something we call the six 
mountains, six mountains. And, and one of those mountains um, is simply, will my team actually use the solution? And so I, I say the best way to ensure that a solution is utilized is to mimic, mimic a behavior in which they currently, that they currently, you know, that they currently e- exhibit in which they, it's a known behavior to solve a particular challenge. And so that's why I know how we're so bullish on taking the best of how knowledge-based technology has advanced in the consumer space primarily and bring that into industries like restoration and mirror those, those experiences to remove the friction of adoption. And, uh, but that's a key thing, Paul, is that if you're going to take this seriously, you have to start thinking about how, not, not just how do I document the content, that's table stakes, right? Not just, you know, how do I give it to my workers in a way where it's trustworthy and reliable and it's been vetted, table stakes. It's really now about how do I give it to them in a format that is, uh, that is familiar because um, I've said this before, you know, companies like Google and Facebook and I guess Meta now, um, Amazon and, you know, companies like that, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year paying thousands and thousands of software engineers to just modify the way that the average consumer thinks about using technology to solve knowledge problems. And so why not just harness all the hard work that they're doing and, uh, and equip your staff with a familiar way of solving problems? No, you, you hit it right on the head. I think that's, you know, let someone else, there's already solving those issues. So let's just use that advice and the way they do it and put it in your workers' hands. We'll be back with Leighton in a moment, but first a word on know-how. KnowHow is an intuitive, mobile-first application designed to rapidly onboard new hires, upskill staff, and provide on-demand expert guidance for whatever task is next. Home to your company's proven methods, KnowHow ensures everyone has the skills they need to get the job done right. With time-saving features that make it a breeze for management to build, maintain, and translate standard operating procedures. It's time to ditch your outdated operation binders and dated, difficult-to-search systems. With know-how in their pocket, your staff have the how-to they need wherever the day takes them. Our new process creator makes drafting new SOPs faster than ever, helping you customize, edit, and share your time-tested methods and processes with ease. And back to Leighton. Let's dive into principle number five, you know, mobilize a bionic workforce. So Mm -hmm. can you explain to me what the term bionic worker means? (laughs) I mean, bionic, uh, I think when we say bionic, we all uh, think of some movie that we watched where some, you know, robotic arm was bolted onto a soldier and they became, you know, um, some type of, you know, sci-fi super soldier that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, what we're talking about is how do you enhance a worker with technology? Uh, you know, I, I um, someone that I like to read uh, has often said that, uh, you know, we're already cyborgs in a sense because we're so reliant on our cell phones. Um, you know, it's called the Google effect. Um, the Google effect is this idea that um, when when information is so easy to access that actually our minds unconsciously just begin, um, uh, you know, investing less time 
and, and less energy in, in committing things to memory. So in many ways, many of us are already bionic in a sense. Bionic meaning the pairing of technology with something organic. And obviously, you know, we're, we're organic beings, uh, humans, you know. And so what we're talking about in mobilizing a bionic workforce, what we're saying is fully embracing technology. And, um, you know, I, I think about um, this may be a silly example, but some listeners might uh, connect with it. Uh, a lot of my roots are kind of farm town, uh, the equivalent of the Canadian Midwest, you know. You know, say say the word Saskatchewan 10 times and see if you can... Uh, you know, not smile, but I, I come from, you know, that part of the of the great white north. And uh, I've got a cousin of mine who's a very successful farmer. Um, and I remember asking him, I said, his name's Jason. I said, Jason, tell me a little bit about what makes you so successful because you're so much more successful than the average farmer. And he said, well, and he always says it the same thing. Well, I mean, I'm just a dumb farmer, but uh, which as soon as someone says I'm just a dumb farmer, you know, they're probably loaded, Right. And uh, so, so after he's, you know, made some self-deprecating comments, he said, well, I mean, one of the things we do is there's a lot of technology now in the industry, uh, in, in, the, in the equipment that we run, um, in, in the, in the, with, with satellite technology and plotting and GPS. And I've just really, really committed myself to try to get at least 85 to 90% of the horsepower out of, these te- out of this technology. And he said, I, I think the average farmer probably gets maybe 18 to 20%. And he said, that's one of the things I do. I just get more horsepower out of the tools because I've just embraced it's just the way that we do we do, we do do agriculture. And I think that that's very similar to companies that have learned how to mobilize a bionic workforce. They, they don't look at technology as an unfortunate reality that's mandated by a carrier. They don't think about technology as one more thing that's kind of a paper cut to their bottom line each month. They've been very selective, very, very intentional in how they pair um, technology with their workforce to enhance and to add productivity. But an angle, Paul, that many people don't consider is that technology is one of the most powerful tools to attract and retain young workers today. Um, I think that a worker who's coming out of retail or maybe coming out of fast food, maybe coming out of some department store, um, which our data has showed that, that you know, nearly 60% of new people walking into the restoration business came from non-general construction roles. So these are people who are literally walking from environments uh, that haven't spent a lot of time on a job site. And when people are attracted to these kind of salt of the earth industries, you know, TV has kind of told everyone that you want to learn how to like flip a castle, you know, when you get a little older and, you know, turn a barn into a, you know, a a design studio, you know, some reality show. Um, But they also like technology. And when you can pair this, when you can kind of pair this, you can have that essential experience of working with your hands and, you know, seeing the, seeing the fruit of your labor at the end of your day, um, pair that with with technology it appeals to young workers um it reinvigorates staff when you bring cutting edge technology not you know not kind of like just kind of the, the the b-class stuff but you bring really cutting edge technology into your workforce it reinvigorates your team and when you when you invest in understanding how to get the most horsepower out of it you can get amazing results with with technology today so that's what we mean by by bionic we mean enhance uh, your people with technology and and I can speak more to that, but um, that's what we mean 
And I, I'm the first one to raise my hand. I came in the restoration industry having no idea what restoration was. You know, I was mm-hmm. managing a retail store. I was working, cutting grass on soccer fields. I had no mm-hmm. clue what it was. But I had a buddy who said, you're already working 100 hours. Why not make overtime and work 100 hours here? Now, did I realize <laughs> he actually meant 100 hours, which it was? <laughs> not at the time. But, you know, most people come in not knowing what, what to do after a loss. And, you know, from my own right. experience working in the field, you know, I can tell you there's a lot of workers that, you know, don't like to use technology in their day to day. Now, especially in this industry, because not long ago, if you had a mold loss, you just simply sprayed some bleach, you floated some carpets, we're good to go. Well, mm-hmm. technology is advanced and it's it, it's changed for the better. So, you know, how can today's companies really encourage these potential you know, tech adverse employees to adopt this change. Generally, when somebody is is tech adverse, I would say you've got to kind of peel back the onion a little bit. I would say the first layer when you when you reach resistance of people uh, um, bringing technology in, let's just well, let, let me just let's just unpack the reasons why people are technology adverse. Number one, uh, there's just gen- there's just the generational workforce. We work in a multi generational workforce nowadays. Uh, we, we have the most generations represented in the workforce today than arguably ever before, um, at least in recorded history. Meaning that you can have in in a single crew, you could have a Gen X, someone who's you know under twenty twenty five and under, someone who's a, a millennial twenty five to forty, someone who's a who's who's a Gen Xer, and and all the way up, and you could have a baby boomer. You know, in that you could have all in one workforce, in one crew, you can have multiple generations represented. Each generation has a different level of familiarity uh, with technology. That's the result of just, again, how, how technology uh, entered into uh, their, the landscape of their life. And so where you have some people on a crew that they can't even think of a time without internet. And others, you know, they remember... Um, when they got their first fax machine and, and, and others remember when they got their first television, right? So when you think that that cocktail is delivering the same water loss project, no question, you're going to have differing opinions on adopting technology. But as most sociologists that study technology will tell you that interestingly, it's not actually the, the most senior people in a company that have the most influence on technology advance uh, uh, adoption. Actually the incoming workforce introduces preferences for technology and those preferences like a groundswell influence the rest of the organization. It's, it's almost like a counterintuitive groundswell of, of effect that happens with technology, meaning that, you know, uh, a young person comes home from school, they're excited about Instagram. Mom wants to make sure that she's not posting the wrong photos. So she gets on Instagram. You know what I'm saying? It, it doesn't work in reverse. It's not like a wise mom said, I've been thinking hard about how do I keep an eye on my daughter, so I've, I've, I searched the internet for a social application that allows me to post pictures of my dessert, right? It's, it's a reverse. So the same thing happens in companies. So people are reluctant to adopt technology because of generational reasons. People are reluctant to, to, to adopt technology when, they, when, when, when the boss or the leadership team didn't stick the landing implementing a previous product and they, and they think it's just going to be another cluster bomb that goes off that just creates more pain than good. People are resistant to technology when uh, technology that, that's being, when, they, when they've been choosing kind of, let's call it um, second tier technology solutions instead of really going for best in class. And so they, they know that there's a better solution, but they got this deal, and so they brought it in. 
Um, people are resistant to technology, um, I would say, when it's not reflective of of uh, the the application or the or we'd say the operating system preferences of their of their company. If they're if everyone in the company, if every single worker has an iPhone and they pick up a technology that only runs on Android, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna hit resistance. Um, you know, if somebody says, "Yeah, we picked up this new piece of technology, but it only runs on a physical computer. It's not a cloud-based technology." Again, you're going to hit a lot of resistance. So there's a lot of reasons why people are resistant to technology. When you want to get your staff to become, you know, this enhanced workforce, um, I would say you just have to be mindful of what are the very reasonable, makes sense, I totally get it, roadblocks to adopting technology, and uh, and just avoid those landmines. You know, one thing you mentioned earlier was, you know, the farmer seeing a lot of technological change through his mm-hmm. life. And as technology mm-hmm. continues to advance, especially in restoration, because it's a very tech, there's a lot of moving parts. You're doing psychrometric readings, you have cubic footage. You know, how do you see that implementing the future of training in the restoration industry and career development? Well, um, I think that what most people have. Um, are very aware of is that if they are not using technology to say train and support and educate their staff, I think they're. I think the day is gone where you're going to bump into someone and who doesn't use technology to train and support their staff, and you were to explain to them that did you know there's technology solutions that can help you um, to train your staff at a, at a more in a more scalable, um, more professional manner. I don't think that you're going to run into someone who says say what you know and they're going to be surprised i think everybody knows that um if they if they are using technology to train and support their staff um they're they're aware of it if they're not they're aware of someone who's doing it so it's not about awareness uh anymore i think that what a lot of people are not aware of is just how rapidly um tools to train and support and guide staff how rapidly that technology has advanced even in the last 18 months. Um, I mean, most training, for example, is, uh, is, is written, and, and, and most of it's written in, in uh, English, at least in the North American marketplace. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of it is in video format. I think that what very few people are aware of is that technology nowadays can take what you've written, can take what you've filmed, can take what you've captured in audio, and do amazing things with it that you that that will just raise eyebrows across your workforce, and and that's the world of generative artificial intelligence, and uh, you know know how as a leader in generative AI, um, pioneering, like just like eyebrow raising solutions into the industry. So, th- what I would say is that people know about it; they know their solutions, whether they're using them or not. What they may not know is how rapidly um, technology is advancing in enabling them to be able to maybe they are a slow adopter or they haven't really got on board with digital training i think most people would be amazed at 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 once they get on board once they decide to get on board with technology to support and train their staff just how significant um that training and support can be um and and, and i think it would just blow their minds um so that's my my thoughts And I think one thing you mentioned there that I want to kind of harp on is this isn't recreating the wheel. It's not saying, okay, we have this great training manual. Now we got to just throw it away and start from scratch. Take that Mm -hmm. information you have and supercharge it. 
put it in a new format. Mm -hmm. It's not recreate our entire program from scratch. It's how do we put it in a different way that workers are used to seeing, you know, really giving that right. ability to amplify it. And I see that as something, you know, being able to get that in their hands and really using that technology to help make things easier, you know, and really mm -hmm. kind of driving that forward. And um, well, here's sorry, Paul, but I, I think that's I think that really if you were to say what should keep a listener up at night, um, the future of training and the future of worker support is going to be heavily influenced by organizations who have taken the time to, to document how they want things done. The vast majority, the vast majority of knowledge in this industry is uh, has been captured experientially, and it lives, people will refer to it as like tribal knowledge. It lives in the minds of, of thousands of ind individuals who've given 20, 30 years to this industry, but they've never had any desire to write a manuscript you know, or to write their memoirs or to, to capture it. And, and, um, and that's, that's the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is that most of how, um, legacy industries like this one, um, operate resides in the mind of, of certain individuals. And I think one of the biggest opportunities and one of the biggest risks that's, that, that is facing the restoration industry is how will we ensure that the knowledge that has has taken so long and there's been so much sweat, blood, and 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 stress to accumulate that knowledge, how do we make sure that it doesn't just transition out of the industry uh, in the minds of these hardworking individuals? How do we find a way to be able to capture it and then use technology to be able to um, enhance uh, and 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 really accelerate uh, the incoming workforce uh, their experience? And so, you know, we think about that a lot at KnowHow. We think about how do you make it easy for that that subject matter expert, that in-house pro, to be able to move their knowledge uh, into a format that is is not only, um, I would say, preserves that knowledge base for the company that uh, that employed them, but but it pre presents it in a format that is appealing and approachable. And, and accessible to young workers and, and workers who, who, who prefer to read and work in different languages. You know, that's how, that's how we think about it. No, this has been great. Mm -hmm. Anyone who wants to get a copy, definitely head over to winningwithworkers.com. Download your free copy. Feel free to share it with your team. And uh, Leighton, thank you for coming on. Uh, we're going to dive into a little bit more on another episode, but this has been extremely insightful, and I thank you for your time. You're welcome, Paul. Thanks for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're hungry for more insights about the restoration industry, feel free to check out our past episodes or head to tryknowhow.com resources for more data-driven insights from the KnowHow research team, including your own free digital copy of Winning with Workers, which breaks down all eight proven principles with actionable advice tailored for restorers. If you want to hear more from Leighton, he'll be live on Wednesday, November 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern with Michelle Blevins of CNR Magazine to discuss the findings from the 2023 CNR State of the Industry. Check out the link in our show notes to save your spot and download your copy of the report at stateofrestoration.com. Thanks for listening and again, take care out there.